Good morning. You guys doing okay? You guys good? <laughs> hey, good to see you guys this morning. Um, you'll have to excuse me this morning. We got a lot of ground to cover, so I don't have uh, a ton of time to... We can't talk a lot this morning like this at the beginning. We'll have to jump into the lesson. I know that really disappoints you guys that you can't hear me tell great jokes or ask how things are going in your life, but uh, we have to jump into the Word. You guys are awfully quiet. Is the sun out? I have not been out since about 6.30 this morning. Is it supposed to be a nice day today? That's a, that's a good thing. I was telling the 7 o'clock service last night, here we are talking. I said we weren't going to do this. Um, <clears throat> I was at the 7 o'clock service last night, and the sun was still out. I could still see the sun, and I don't know if that just makes anyone else happy besides me when the days get long. Man, when it starts getting dark at like, you know, 3.15 in Tennessee in the winter, that's depressing, man, that's hard. So when the sun's out at, at 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, I, that, that jazzes me up, I like it. So we are, in, uh, we are in the Gospel of John. We've been working through this for quite some time. We did chapter 10 last week, and, and what's been going on, if you haven't been here, is Jesus and the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, these are different kind of sects of the religious world when, when Jesus was, was walking around earth. Um, these groups of people, the religious people, would argue a lot with Jesus. The, a lot of the gospels is this back and forth between Jesus and the religious people. In chapter 10, Jesus puts it very, very plainly, very simple. Uh, they keep asking, who is he? What is his identity? And several times he tells them very plainly, but he tells them a, a metaphor, an analogy in chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and the ones who follow me are my sheep. And we typically use the, the term sheep in kind of a condescending, offensive way in our culture today, but Jesus didn't mean it like that. He just meant that he is, he is the leader, and those who follow him, those who listen to his voice and respond to his word, are, are his sheep, and he leads them out. He says he takes them out to pasture, takes care of them, protects them. He, he is a good shepherd over his sheep. And so what we talked about last week was, was this idea of if we are to be the, the sheep of God, if you will, followers of Jesus, we have to position ourselves not only to, to hear his voice, but we have to be willing to respond to where the shepherd tells us to go. So that's what we talked about last week. Are we positioning ourselves? Are we intentionally creating the space for, for Jesus to speak to us? Are we intentionally doing that? Okay, that's what we talked about last week. This week, and we got a lot of ground to cover, so again, I hope I haven't wasted too much time already. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Um, we're gonna do all of chapter 11 because it's virtually impossible to, to, to split this. It's just too cohesive of a story. So we're gonna talk about the resurrection of Lazarus. And if you've never heard of that, I, I just spoiled the ending for you. Um, we're gonna talk about a man who is dead and Jesus shows up in a, in a little town called Bethany and resurrects him from the dead. What's interesting about the, the 11th chapter of John, which is about Lazarus, is it's really not that much about Lazarus. He is the focal point in the fact that this crisis that is taking place has to do with the fact that he dies. But the chapter really mentions much more and we, we, we find out much more about the witnesses of this very troublesome, tumultuous situation, right? So what we're gonna talk about today is because chapter 11 mostly focuses on the response of the witnesses of Lazarus's death and resurrection. And so what we're gonna ask ourselves today is, is how do we respond? Uh, inevitably, there is going to be troublesome, tumultuous adversity in your life. This is going to happen. We'll talk about that a little bit later. 
The question is not if it's going to happen. The question is how do we handle these kinds of situations, okay? That's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. So uh, if you entered through one of these three entrances, you should have received a notes handout. I don't know how else you would have gotten in this room, uh, maybe repelled from the ceiling. If you did that, you probably didn't get a notes handout. You can still use your app. Just click on sermon notes on the Experience Community app. It's got all the notes and the scripture right there. If you actually have a copy of the scripture, we're in the fourth book of the New Testament, the 11th chapter. We're gonna do all of it, so we got a, a little bit of reading to do, but that's okay. We'll get through it relatively quick. And of course, everything will be uh, on the screen behind me as I teach, all right? So we should be in good shape. Let me pray. We'll work through chapter 11. Well, very fascinating story. And, uh, and you can go out and enjoy the rest of what's supposed to be a, a beautiful Sunday, okay? So let me pray for you. Father God, we love you. And I thank you so much for, for everyone in this room right here, right now, Lord. I pray that you bless our church. We pray not only for this church, though, Father, we pray for, for all believers, um, in our community, Lord, we pray for all churches in our community. We pray, God, Lord, for all non-believers in our community that they would come to know you, Lord. We pray for our other campuses. We pray for all the people in those communities. We pray for the wonderful nonprofits that we're partnering with this month, God, when it comes to addiction recovery. And of course, Lord, at the end of all this, we just pray that, that you are glorified and that our relationship with you grows stronger as we study your word this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, we pray all these things in your son's name, in Jesus' name, amen. I usually say I'm gonna read a little, I'm not. I'm gonna read 16 verses, I'm gonna read a chunk here, and then we'll go back and we'll, we'll break it down, okay? Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? Aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this and then he told them, I love this part, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, also called twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too, so we may die with him. He's referring to Jesus. So if you have been keeping up, and I, I don't expect you to keep up with things like this, but if you're keeping up, uh, John has recorded six miracles to prove that Jesus is the Savior. This is his seventh recorded miracle, and it's gonna be the biggest one so far. 
What Jesus is going to do is Jesus is going to reach into a territory that, that no one can do except for God. He is going to reach into the afterlife. He's going to reach into death. Now about death, you're all going to die. I hate to, hate to break that to you. It's a depressing thing to tell all of you on a Sunday morning, but the Bible says all of you have an appointed time to die. We're all gonna die. That was not God's initial plan for humanity. When God created Adam and Eve, his intention was for them to live forever. What happened was is sin came into the picture because Adam and Eve did something to, that, that they weren't supposed to do. They rebelled against God, if you will. Sin was introduced into the picture and now we have death. And we all deal with the ramifications of that sin being introduced into humanity. So because that was not God's original intention for humanity, what Jesus is eventually going to do in Revelation chapter 20 is when he comes back, death will be permanently abolished eventually, that he will eventually abolish death. The good news is all of you will live forever. The bad news is not all of you will live with Jesus forever. I hope all of you will, but some people will not live with Jesus forever, but death will be abolished. So let's talk about these three siblings. Um, it is up to debate. Some people believe it is, some people believe it is not. The same Mary as Mary Magdalene. There are different people. and it does, It's not the, a deal breaker if you agree or disagree with it, it, that this is Mary Magdalene. What we do know is this Mary had a sister named Martha, a brother named Lazarus. Jesus really, really loved this family, really, really loved Lazarus. We know that this Mary is the one in Matthew and Mark that anointed Jesus's feet with very, very expensive oil and wiped off his feet with her hair. And so Jesus got the message that this family was in a crisis and that Lazarus, someone that he really cared about, uh, was sick, so sick that he was about to die. And so Jesus says, right when he gets the message, he says, this sickness will not end in death. This is going to glorify God, and this is going to glorify the Son of God who is sent by him. And what we learn from this, and now listen, this is very easy for us to amen. We like amening stuff like this in church, but when real life happens, it's not as easy to amen. But, but here's the truth. The truth is this. Any crisis that brings glory to God is a good thing. That's tough. I, I know from real experience that's tough. We, we had a, a, a person very, very close to us a couple of years ago, my wife and I and our family, who, who passed away unexpectedly, and, and that was hard. It was confusing, a lot of questions, God, what's going on? But as a result of that, we had other family members who, who came into a relationship with Jesus because of this tragic situation. So, so for those of us that love God and put our hope in God, God uses all things for the good of those that love them and for his glorification. So any crisis that brings glory to God, even if we don't understand, that's a good thing. Now, though that is, that is true and we amen it, when the rubber meets the road, it's not always easy to live it out if we're being quite honest in this room this morning, okay? So when Jesus finds out about Lazarus, he does two things that are very odd. The first thing he does when he finds out that Lazarus is on his deathbed is he does nothing. It says he waits for two days. Now, if you or I got a, a, a message that someone that we loved is about to die, we, we hurry to go see them. Jesus didn't hurry. He said he, he sat where he was for two days. That's odd. Another odd thing he does is the opposite of that. He says, okay, let's go to Judea. Let's go see him. And the disciples are like, 
Well, they just tried to kill you twice in Judea. Do you really want to go back that way? So both of these responses would have been odd, but what is interesting is the disciples did not question what he wanted to do. And so true disciples of Jesus, even if they don't understand, even if the the direction Jesus wants to go seems confusing to us, true disciples follow Jesus. That's very, very simple, but we follow the direction of Jesus. But again, the disciples, because they're humans, they said, well, If we go that way, that could be dangerous. It could be dangerous for you. It could be dangerous for us. Their their, their future was uncertain in their eyes. And so Jesus responds with this. He says, there aren't, uh, he he asks the question, he goes, aren't there 12 hours in a day? Well, yes, there's 12 hours of day, 12, 12 hours of night. What's his point? His point is, is we only have a limited amount of time to do what the Lord wants us to do in this life. And so not only are we to trust the timing of Jesus, we are also to be good stewards with the time that we have. And so Jesus even says, when when we are selfish, when we walk in the night, we stumble. Because if if we're just following what we want to do, we don't have the light of God in us. And it is impossible to see our path when we have no light emanating from us. But when we are following Jesus, we have Jesus in us and the light of Christ, it it illuminates our path so we can see where we're going and we don't stumble. So so here's the thing. Are Are we to trust God's timing? Absolutely. But we are also to use the time we have wisely. If you, if you don't have children in here, you haven't experienced this yet. And I'm not saying that, that us with children are better than those of you that don't have children. But when people have children, you realize just how quickly time accelerates, right? You just get older faster. That's what happens when you have children. And they get old really, really fast. And so what you start to learn when you have children is if I don't manage this time wisely, my youngest is only going to be 10 once. You know, they're only going to be in elementary school or middle school or high school once. That, that, that we have to be very good stewards of this time because it's, it's, it's fleeting. And that's, if that's important with our children, how much more important is it that we use our time wisely for the development of our soul, for our eternity? That I need to prioritize time to read the word of God, to meditate on the things of God, to pray and talk to God. I need to prioritize time to raise my children in the teachings of the Lord, to to invest into my marriage, which is an earthly example of this relationship we have with God, that these things need to be a priority. We need to use our time wisely. Now, listen, I'm a pretty busy guy. A lot of people go, oh, you know, like if I just had, you know, the time like so-and-so had. Listen, no one gets more than 24 hours in a day. Does everyone understand that? Well, if I just had the time that so-and-so had, I would do much more. Do you think they have like a magic watch that stops the universe or something? No, it is time management. There's this fantastic app on most of your phones. It's called a calendar. And if you click on that, you can plot things in that calendar and it helps you manage your time. It's it's fascinating, and I think time management glorifies God. And so one of my favorite things in this chapter, Jesus, man, just, just being Jesus, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. And the disciples didn't get it. They're like, oh, he's sleeping, that's good. He's gonna get a lot better. And then Jesus, <laughs> Jesus had to speak real plainly right after saying that, that, that 
that this sickness will not result in death, Jesus looks at his disciples and goes, he's dead, he's dead. They didn't understand that sleep was a euphemism, used as an example, a metaphor for death. So again, all of this is preordained. All of this has been set in motion by God to glorify God and to help the faith of the witnesses. And you gotta love Thomas. Not only do you have to love Thomas, you have to love John. So John mentions Thomas three times and none of them are in a positive light. (laughs) I see this mention though as positive. I take this as positive. Thomas hears this, doubting Thomas we call him. Thomas hears that it's gonna be treacherous. His, His future is questionable. He doesn't know if he's gonna be murdered. And so what he says is he goes, well, Jesus wants to go up there, we could die. All right, boys, let's go die with him. And when I read stuff like that, this is honest to goodness what I do when I read stuff like that. I pause for a second and I I ask myself, if I was in the same situation, would I say, okay, let's go die? And I think it's a good question for Christians to ask. Am I willing to lay it all on the line if Jesus says we're going that way? Am I willing to do it? And so this was supposed to be kind of a negative thing, but I think it actually looks like a very positive thing. Thomas was willing to die for Jesus, okay? Let's keep going. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. And Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Interesting. So they show up four days late to a funeral. Now, the the effects of the funeral would have still been lingering on. 
A little bit different in our culture, it doesn't really work like that, but in this culture, people would linger on for, for quite a bit of time. There might have been people playing funeral songs, there might have been people mourning, there might have been people helping Mary and Martha with things around the house or preparing food for the different people. There was people from, from uh, Jerusalem that had come over uh, because this family was very, very popular. They're a very well-known family in this area called Bethany. So all this does is this just builds the situation more. We're starting to see the gravity of this miracle get heavier and heavier. And so Martha comes out. Now, the way I see Martha in my mind is kind of the logical, pragmatic one of, of the siblings. Martha comes out, and when she says, Lord, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. I don't see that as a disrespectful thing. I don't think she's trying to be rude. I don't think she's trying to complain. I think she is acknowledging that Jesus, if you were in the situation, it would have been different. She also seems to hold out some hope. She even says that, that Lord, even now, whatever you ask for, God will give you. So it seems like she kind of holds out some hope. And Jesus's response to that is, your brother's gonna rise. She wasn't thinking rise <laughs> that day. She was thinking about his salvation. She was basically saying, yes, yes. He loved you, he loved God, he's saved. When the resurrection happens, yes, I know that he will rise again. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. He says, everyone who believes in me, even if they die, will live. And though Jesus was planning on doing this huge miracle, it's gonna be the, the biggest miracle that he's done so far in the Gospel of John, what I believe, and not just me, other people who've written about this, believe that Jesus was checking Martha's priorities. Basically, she was approaching him with, with theology, talking about the resurrection, talking about salvation, and Jesus, I think, was making sure that she was focused on the right thing. What I mean by that is this. There are some people who come to church looking for the things of God, but not God. There are some whole churches that are about the gifts of God, but not so much about the giver of the gifts. And if we come to church just for what we can get from God and not God himself, we are here for the wrong reason. So Jesus looks at Martha and he's essentially saying, what is most important, that I heal his body or that his soul is healed? And it seems like Martha's priorities are in the proper place because the bottom line is this. Listen, I believe in healing. I have seen miraculous healing here. I've seen it in other places in the world and in other places in the United States. I have seen miraculous healing. I don't think God always does that. And again, we have to remember, we're all gonna die. Something is going to get all of us. In fact, the Bible even says, Jesus himself says, we're not even promised tomorrow, so we may not even have a long life. The Bible is clear about that. But if our souls are saved by Jesus Christ, if we have a relationship with him, we can be promised this, you're all going to get healed eventually. You're all going to resurrect into perfect bodies that will never be sick again. So will everyone be healed? If they're a Christian, absolutely they will be. So we have to keep the main things the main things. That it is about a relationship with Jesus first, and then the benefits of that come when he wants us to receive those gifts and those healings and those things like that. So Martha came intellectually to Jesus, okay? I believe she was very pragmatic, very, very theological, and, and, and she came logically to Jesus, and that's okay. Mary came a completely different way. 
Mary didn't come wanting to talk about theology. Mary just fell at the feet of Jesus. She fell at his feet and said the same thing. If you would have been here, if you would have been a part of the situation, it would have been completely different. Now they came with different approaches and both of them are good. And I think our approach to Jesus should be a blend of the two. Martha came with head knowledge. She knew, she was expectant. She knew the capabilities of Jesus, right? She knew good theology. She knew those things. She had that and that's important. We need that. The Bible says that we approach God in two ways, in truth, which is how Martha did it. We also approach God in spirit, which means emotion and heart. And we see that in Mary. It wasn't about deep uh, uh, intellect with Mary. It's about falling at his feet and saying, if you just would have been here. And this is how we approach Jesus with both of these approaches, just like Mary, just like Martha. And when Jesus saw Mary weeping, when he looked up, and he saw all the people crying and upset, he started to cry. And he gets upset and says, deeply moved, deeply troubled. Why? Why in the world would, would Jesus be deeply moved and troubled? He knows what he's about to do. He's about to fix the situation. So why is Jesus upset? This is very important. Jesus was upset because his most loved creation was feeling the effects of sin. Sin was introduced into the world by humanity, and the ramifications of sin is sickness, it's death, it's aggression, it's hatred, it's all of these things that God doesn't want for us, but we have to deal with now because we allowed sin into the mix. And so as Jesus stands there and he sees the ramifications, he sees that sin hurts people that death hurts people, that sickness hurts people, and that hurt him. And that leads to the shortest scripture in the whole Bible, but one that is very impactful, that Jesus wept. This wasn't just one single solitary tear. This was the kind of crying to where, you know when you, you almost have like a hard time catching your breath, where you might have to bend over a little bit and catch your breath, where, where, where you may put your hands over your face because you were just weeping. It is that deep, guttural crying out, and this is how Jesus reacted to this situation. And so there were people watching this from a distance. If you can imagine, imagine standing there and you're seeing this, and you see Jesus maybe bent over or covering his face, and he is, I mean, deep crying. And some people said, wow, Look at how much he loved Lazarus. Look at how much he loves this family. And then other people, and, and, and I get why they would say this. Other people say, well, if he could make the blind see, why couldn't he have stopped this? Why couldn't he have been here and fixed this? And little did they know their, their entire perception was about to be rattled and changed and challenged. So listen, I make these PowerPoints myself, and I hope you guys appreciate. Sometimes it's really hard to find a picture that fits a certain passage, and you look for stuff, and I even pay for like a, a royalty-free picture website because it's so hard to find stuff. I think this is actually like a woman or something, but I had to crop it to where you have to pretend that it's Lazarus being wrapped up. And I make these PowerPoints, and I'm like, I hope someone out there appreciates how hard it is just to find, thank you. Someone over here makes PowerPoints for a living as well. Just how hard it is to find decent pictures, all right? All right, let me read a little bit. 
Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead for four days. Um, you know, it's fun. If you have a King James Version Bible, it says, he stinketh. <laughs> Jesus said to her, <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe that you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips, uh, with, with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Pretty intense scene here. So this is a very important slide, and I hope you hear me out. I'm not trying to bust Martha's chops, but, but Martha is kind of a, a very similar person to, to maybe some of us in this room. Up to this point, it seems like Martha is 100% theologically on board with Jesus. She is 100% in. But after she just says, if you go back a couple of verses, she says, Jesus, even if you ask God for whatever you want right now, he'll do it. And Jesus says, okay remove the stone. And now Martha's like, oh, wait a second. Uh, he's been dead for four days. Listen, take this and, and put it in the context of your own life. Whenever we say, we sing songs about it all the time. Jesus, you can do anything. Jesus, you love me and you see me. And then the rubber hits the road in our life and we're like, oh, but it's been like this for a long time. I don't know if he can fix that. This is what Martha did. Right? She had all the faith in the world until that faith was pushed. And then it was like, do I believe Jesus can do something here? Now, it's easy to pick on Martha, but if we're honest with ourselves, how many times have we done this? How many times have we done this? How many, how many times do we see this with people around us that, that we affirm the word? And then when the rubber meets the road, that, that, that lack of faith, that doubt kind of creeps in a little bit. So Jesus mildly rebukes Martha for this, mildly rebukes her and says, didn't I tell you that if you would just believe that you would see the glory of God? And this gets us to our, our thesis of the book of John. The whole thesis of the book of John is, is not seen as believing. That's the way the world works. That's the way the flesh works. In God's economy, if we believe, he shows himself. If we believe in him, we will see God move. Jesus even says that. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So this is important. Look at this. If we're humble and have, these three words are important, a sincere objective desire. If we approach the truth objectively, we will see the truth and we will see God work in our life. It is bad theology to approach the word of God already having a belief. Let me explain what that means. It's like science. My wife used to be a scientist. It is bad science to, to, to already have an outcome. I think this is going to happen. And then creating experiments to somehow get to that. That's bad science. Any scientist will tell you that. It is also a bad approach to theology. If I already believe that this is wrong and this is right and vice versa, 
and then approach the Bible with my slanted, subjective approach, we're gonna manipulate and bastardize the word. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we are to approach Jesus with sincere, objective desire to see the truth. And then that truth will be presented to us, and if we accept it, we see God work. We see God work in our lives, and we see God work in the lives of those around us. So here's another interesting thing. So Jesus gets up there, right? The, the, the stone has been removed from the tomb, and Jesus raises his eyes to heaven, and he prays. And I love this, because Jesus essentially says, hey, you know I don't have to do this, but I'm doing this for all the people watching right now. He could have, he could have got Lazarus right out of there without saying anything, without doing anything. Could have snapped his fingers or just said, Lazarus, come out, whatever the case may be, and Lazarus would have came out. But he looks up and he says, hey, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. This isn't for us right now, but this is so those who are listening, those who are watching, it's an example. This is so they may believe, that they may grow in their faith. And then after he does that, he says, Lazarus, with a loud voice, I love that, with a loud, commanding, authoritative voice, Jesus says, come out. And what we see in this passage is two things that I love about Jesus. This, this, this wonderful uh, kind of balance and, and, and scope of who Jesus is. Jesus is gentle. He is humble. That's why the Bible refers to him as the lamb, the sacrificial lamb of God. He is gentle. He is humble. He is meek. He is also the creator God. He is also the most extreme power that has ever existed. And we see both the gentle humility of Jesus and we see the authoritative power of God as Jesus looks and speaks to death essentially and says, get up and walk out of here. We see both sides of that. Now listen, here's something. We, we, and I'm not trying to be a jerk here if you've ever bought one of these shirts, even though I think they're really dumb. Back when those like Jesus is my homeboy things was like popular. You know, you could like, hey, Jesus is my bro. Jesus is my boy. Um, Jesus isn't your bro. He's not your boy. You're, you're not on an equal footing with Jesus Christ. Now the Bible says he's a friend. He's a good friend that sticks closer than a brother. And I believe that. I believe Jesus loves the small things. I believe Jesus wants to put his arm around you and talk about your day. I believe that. That's fine. But Jesus is not your bro. He's not your homie. He's not your buddy. Jesus is the God that spoke the universe into existence. And at the, listen, at the end of the Bible, it says that the same God that spoke it into existence, Jesus will also speak it out of existence and recreate a new heaven and a new earth and a beautiful city will come down, rest on a new earth, and that's where we will reside forever after all of humanity has been judged by Jesus Christ. Now, is he your friend? He is your friend. We also must have that proper respect and reverence Bible would even say proper fear of the Lord, that he is the creator God. He is both of those things. And we need not to forget that. In America, we forget that. We, we try to humanize Jesus too much. We try to humanize God too much. And he's much more than that. So we can imagine the shock of the witnesses of this scene. I find it interesting that Lazarus didn't walk out of the grave like, like, you know, like wearing like really nice clothes, just being like, hey guys, sorry, I've been gone for four days. How is everybody? No, it wasn't like that. He virtually looked like a mummy. He comes out, it says his legs, his hands were bound by linen cloths, wrappings. His face was covered up. If we're being honest, some of us would have been you know, a little shocked and, and, and it would have been unsettling. That's a good way of saying it. 
It would have been a very, very exciting, interesting moment. Notice this, John <laughs> never recorded Lazarus's response. John never, I'm sure he talked to him, but he didn't even bother to record Lazarus's response to being raised from the grave. Nor does he bother recording the response of the witnesses. Why? Because John didn't want to take away from the main point. The main point wasn't that there was a dead man that resurrected from the grave. The main point was Jesus was going through this huge miraculous ordeal to build the faith of the people who wanted to see the truth. Jesus was doing all this to increase the people's faith. So here's what we gather from this. This is very important. Searching leads to the gospel, to Jesus's word, and the acceptance of that leads to us seeing God move. That is very, very simple. If we look, we find the truth. If we accept the truth, we see God move. I think it's the second time I've essentially said that just in this section, okay? Leave you with a happy picture here, and we will read this last part. <laughs> Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Romans had essentially already done that. One of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. Now, the Jewish Passover was near, and many, uh, many went to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. So many religious leaders and many of the, of the common folk, normal citizens, witnessed Lazarus's resurrection and they became believers. Some though, on the other hand, ran back to the Pharisees, the, 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 the top dog of the religious leaders, and they convened the Sanhedrin. That is the Jewish court. If you've ever seen any movies about the, the crucifixion of Jesus, that's the court that indicts Jesus, that, 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 uh, that, that accuses him of, of different things. So this is pretty fascinating. Look at this. I don't know if you missed this or not. The, the religious people said that Jesus is doing many signs. They did not deny what Jesus was doing. So if they did not deny what Jesus is doing, why didn't they follow him? Jesus was doing things that only God could do. Why not follow him? We, we hear the reason why a couple of verses after that. Because following Jesus may alter the way we live. 
and some people don't wanna give up their lifestyle. Some people, listen, this is the height of insanity, that there are some people who will see the evidence of God, they will see the evidence of God, but they will not follow God because they don't wanna give up uh, how much money they make. They don't wanna give up who they're having sex with. They don't wanna give up, uh, I don't know, the, the, the comfort and ease of their life at the moment. They don't wanna have to, to, to maybe live somewhere else or, or stop saying certain things or in, in getting involved in certain things. So what we will do as humans is we will give up eternity in paradise for a temporary feel right now. If you take about 10 steps away from that, that is nuts. But we do it all the time, do we not? Even a lot of us as professing Christians, we're willing to put eternity on the line for, for this, this feel, for this pleasure, for this thing, for this neighborhood, for this material possession, for this power, for this affirmation. And again, when we step back at it, it's, it's crazy. It's like saying, I'll give you, you know, $5 now or a million dollars in 10 years. What do you want? Well, I want the five now, right? Because I'm just thinking about right now. And it's crazy. But this is what the religious leaders did. And now we're introduced to who could arguably be the, the greatest villain in the Bible besides the devil himself, a religious high priest named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was not only the, the, the top dog in the religious world in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus, he was also a very arrogant man. Here, here's where it gets a little confusing. Not only was he a evil man and an arrogant man, he was also a very gifted man, gifted by God, gifted with the ability to make a prophecy. The, the scripture says he made a prophecy not on his own, which means it was by God. And it was about Jesus's crucifixion, but he had no idea what he was actually prophesying about. It is so fascinating. You go back and read it. And Caiaphas prophesied, he says, don't you see that it's advantageous for one man to die instead of all of the people dying? It's exactly what Jesus came to do not for the physical protection of all of his people, but for the spiritual salvation of all of his people. It is exactly what Christ came to do, to give his life so the scattered children of God could be saved. And that's exactly what Caiaphas prophesies, but he prophesies it in a way that he totally didn't understand. He said, we'll kill this guy so our way of life can be preserved. And Jesus actually came to die so that we could have a certain way of life for eternity. And Caiaphas did not even realize what he was saying. He totally missed it. And at this point, Jesus stops his public ministry. He stops his public ministry. He goes to the, the countryside, the, the kind of desert region of Judea. And though he is not visible, though he's not walking around Jerusalem in big cities, though he's not walking around big crowds, the crowds are still looking for him. Some of them are looking for him just because he's famous, just because they want to show, they want to see a trick. They wanna see a miracle. They wanna get a part of what's cool and, and what's kind of, a, you know, the buzz is about. Other people genuinely wanted to be saved and changed. And then there were some people looking for Jesus because they wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus was a threat to the way that they thought and lived. Which should beg the question from us, what are we looking for? What is our motive? Is it entertainment? Is it to pass the time? Is it because we genuinely think we need salvation and help? Or do we have murderous intentions? Will we destroy anyone who gets in our way of living the way we want to live? 
What is our motive? Where is our heart? Okay, let's talk about a couple of really, really important principles from this lesson today. The first one is this. And again, I keep telling you depressing things this morning, but, but this shouldn't be depressing. Look, Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 16, in this life there is going to be struggles. Some translations say in this life there will be trouble. Others say in this life there will be suffering. You get the point though. Jesus makes it very clear. The Bible does not, does not bait and switch you. It's very honest. And Jesus says in, in, in John uh, 16, life is gonna be tough sometimes. Now, this should lead us to believe that if you ever find your way in a church, and hopefully you won't, I've said this before, but it's worth saying again because it's fun. If you find your way in a church and they say, man, if you follow Jesus, it's all about your best life now. That was a little passive aggressive, wasn't it? It's all about health and wealth and everything's gonna be good. Everyone's gonna like you. You're going to like everyone. It's gonna be easy. If you find yourself in a situation where Christians are saying that, reach back, make sure your wallet is still in your back pocket because they're not after the gospel, they're after your money. They're not teaching the gospel. That's why all those guys that say crap like that are filthy rich and live in a way that I don't think pastors should live, but that's a whole other conversation for another day. If we, if we read the true gospel, Jesus says, look, sometimes life is gonna be hard. He also says this, if we keep on reading, but he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. So here's the thing. The question is not, will you go through hard times? Jesus said, you will. The question is not, will you suffer? Will you go through tumultuous seasons in your life? You will. The question is, how will we handle those things? Not only how will we handle them, will we trust in God regardless of how the outcome is, regardless of how the chips fall? Will we still trust in him? Another thing we have to learn is this. First is, is that in this life there will be suffering. The second thing we need to learn is this. This life is temporary, it is fleeting, it will go away. None of you will beat death, no human ever has. All of us are eventually going, our lives, our time on this, uh, on this world is going to come to an end. And the Bible again is very clear and it says, you may not even have tomorrow, which means what you do today, listen, is important because you may not even have tomorrow. The Bible says your life is like a vapor. It leaves and dissipates. It's quick. That doesn't mean that we should be nihilists or think that we should, you know, carpe diem, let's go, you know, like dance on high rises and cliffs because we could die. That's stupid. What it means is this. The time that we have now is an investment into our eternity. I said it earlier. The good news is this, is that all of you will live forever. The bad news is not everyone in this room will live with Jesus forever. So what we do with our temporary time dictates our eternity. Eternity. So if we are in a relationship with Jesus, we know we're gonna go through hard times, we know that how we handle those hard times will dictate our future. And if we have a relationship with Jesus, we don't always see hard times as a 100% negative thing. It is through hard times that we actually become wiser people, that we become people of wisdom. It is when we go through adversity that we become people of wisdom. It is when we go through adversity that we become deeper people, more gracious people. Travis that did announcements, he even said it, I believe. He was, he was an addict to really, really hard drugs for a decade. 
Muhammad, who's, who, who wasn't always a Christian, Cole, that wasn't always a Christian, these, these gentlemen who when people come in here and they need help and they need assistance, they go back to three people who were not born with silver spoons in their mouth and have not always had it easy. And because those are the people that we have handle those kind of claims, there's a lot of grace, there's a lot of empathy, there's a lot of, of care there because they have been through similar hardships. Listen, if you reach a point in your life to where you're going through junk, you don't, you don't seek out someone that's never had to go through anything. Hey, tell me how you made it, right? They haven't had to make it through anything. That's not who you find. You find the people who have been through the fire and made it out the other side by the grace of God. And that's where we get our wisdom. That's where we get our direction and our accountability. Here, this is an important one. We also need to be humble in times of trouble, in times of suffering, in times of, of hard situations. We need to be humble. This is very, very important. Sometimes we get into the mud because we have placed ourselves in the mud. We live in a culture right now that it is never our fault, right? If I can't handle my money, it's not, it's not my fault. It's Joe Biden's fault. It's Donald Trump's fault. It's some other banker somewhere. It's their fault that I can't spend my money wisely. If we act like fools, we blame it on our parents or we blame it on some situation that happened 20 years ago. We are blame shifters to the max in the United States. Here's the thing though. If we have ended up in the mud and it's our fault, we need to humble ourselves, be responsible, and just ask Jesus to forgive us. Lord, I have been dumb. I have been selfish. I have been sinful. Please forgive me. And if we will humble ourselves and acknowledge our fault, Jesus will help us out of the mud. He will start to put us on the, proper, on the proper path. There are also some of us in this room that we have ended up in the mud by someone else's foolishness or sinfulness or aggression or whatever the case may be. In those cases, I'm gonna tell you because this is another thing we do in our society. We get hurt one time, especially if it's in a church, and we hold on to that hurt and it becomes the center point of our identity. And that's not the way Christians should act. If you have been hurt by someone, if you have been put into a situation by someone else, you eventually have to reach a point to where you forgive that person. Well, Corey, they never asked for my forgiveness, and they may never will, but you need to reach a place to where you have let that go in your heart and you have forgiven them. Now, that doesn't mean that we are foolish, that we also walk in wisdom. Listen, we can be Christ-like, forgive certain people, and also keep them at a safe distance. If you're a woman in here and your husband has been physically abusive, you can forgive him, but you don't need to be in the same house with him. You don't need to be around that, okay? That's not, that, that's not the situation you need to be in. And we also need to trust Jesus regardless of the circumstances. Are our hearts, honestly, if we're being honest in this room, are our hearts positioned to live in this manner? To where we own our faults, we forgive others for their faults, and we trust God regardless of what the situation is? Are, are, are we positioned like that? And if we're not, are we willing to be positioned like that? So here is the thing. You may be in a situation because something you have done. You may be in a situation because of something someone else has done. Listen, you may be in a tough situation because God has put you in that situation regardless of why we are in a time of trouble. And listen, if you're in this room right now and you're like, life is a piece of cake for me right now, fantastic, I'm so happy for you, but I guarantee you there will, the trouble is always coming. No one gets out of this life unscathed, my brothers and sisters. There's always adversity that comes. It is important for us to remember that in that adversity, in that time of trouble, 
when something dies around us and there is confusion and sadness, whether that be a person, a place, if there's some transition in our life, if, if we feel like things are forever changed, we have to go back to Christ in those times. And we, we have to remember that, yes, Jesus is a faithful friend. He is the one, I believe, I said it earlier, I believe Jesus cares about the small things in your life. I believe Jesus wants to wrap his arms around you and walk with you and say, tell me about your day. I know you're frustrated at work. What can I do to help you? I know you're frustrated with your relationships. Let me help you with that. I know sometimes you struggle with these things. Let me walk with you in that. He is a good friend. I also believe that Jesus is a good father. I'll go even further that and say, some of you didn't have fatherless you know, situations like I did. Maybe you had a motherless situation. I believe Jesus fills that void too, that he is the parent to the parentless that he is the one that walks with us. He wants to provide for us. He wants to comfort us. He wants to lead us to good pastures so we have the things that we need. I believe Jesus is a wise counselor, that if we lack knowledge or wisdom or discernment or direction, that Jesus gives that to us if we will just humbly seek him. And then ultimately, sometimes when we are in our situations, we just don't believe that there is any way to get out of it. And in those times, we have to remember, Jesus is not just a good friend. He's not just a father. He's not just a counselor. He is the creator God that is capable of all things. All things. And sometimes I think we forget that. We also need to remember in times of trouble that we can go to him. Why? Because he loves you. Listen, I wanna make this personal. He loves you more than anything he has ever created. I haven't said this in a long time. Do you know the, you, you, humans, are the only thing in the universe that looks like Jesus? Did you know that? You are the only thing that has ever been created that resembles God. You are the only thing made in his image, Genesis chapter two. Not only that, not only are you the only thing made in the image of God, you are the only creation with the breath of God breathed into them. That reminds us that we are very valuable. You are, you may not feel like this, but this is the truth. You are the masterpiece of God's creative abilities. You are the masterpiece of God. You are his best piece of art. That's what you are. That should, that should let us know that we can go to him in times of trouble. Even furthermore, he came and lived and died and was miraculously resurrected by his own power to save our souls, and this should tell us, I can go to him, I can trust him, he loves me, he wants what's best for me, that if I will approach him with humility like Martha, right, fall on our face, if you would just be in the situation, do you hear that? If we would just invite him into the situation, both Martha and Mary said, Lord, if you were here, it wouldn't have ended like this. That is the same for all of our situations. Lord, if you are in it, it will change. It will be resurrected. It will be different. But we have to seek him with humility. We have to seek him with expectancy that God wants to get us where he wants to get us. Thank you. Listen. So, so, so here is the thing. Again, I do not know where you're at. Maybe only God knows where you're at right now in life. Maybe life is easy. Let me, let me tell you this. Most people leave a relationship with Jesus and a relationship with the church, not when times are hard, but when times are good. 
This is humanity, and I'm talking too much, but I wanna say this real quick. If you go back and read about the life of David, right? Most people know who David is, killed a giant, was a king, big deal. When Davis was being chased by Saul, when, when David was in fear for his life, when David was in a complicated, confusing situation, David was never closer to God but in that situation. Do you know when David had his fall from grace? When he was a rich king. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? This is why the United States has no faith, and this is why third world Africa has faith. Because when we live in certain levels of tension, we depend on God because we're needy. But when we think we have it all taken care of, this is when people step away from the church. This is when people step away from faith, when we start believing we are kings and I have my life under control. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Greg is up here. If you have any questions for us, we are not afraid or offended by questions, please come up here and ask Greg questions. We also have men and women on both sides of the, the, the front of the stage if you need prayer for anything, anything in your life. Don't do it alone. If you're going through a hard time, don't do it alone. If you're not going through a hard time, make sure your heart is prepared for when those times come. Let someone pray with you. There's also, all the way around this room, wherever you see a lamp on a table, in the majority of the posts in the middle of the room, there's bread and wine, and that represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that's communion. It is a tangible reminder that God loves us so much that he would give his only son that if we would just believe in him, we will not die, but have everlasting life, life eternal. Everyone is welcome to take communion this morning if you've asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin. Okay, let me pray for you real quick before you leave. Father God, we love you. Lord, I pray that as we go back out into our daily lives, Father, if life is, is easy right now, I, we, we thank you for that, Lord, but we know that troubles always come. And so God, prepare our hearts for whatever may come. Lord, if there are people in this room who, all, who are already going through something confusing, tumultuous, hard, I pray, God, that you be with them and I pray that they humble themselves find themselves in front of you, God, face first, just saying, Lord, if you would be a part of the situation, it'll be different. And God, if people will humbly seek you, you will make a difference, Lord. God, protect us until we meet again. Protect our mind, protect our soul, protect our bodies. God, bless everyone in here, Lord, under the sound of my voice and be with them, God. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. Pray all these things in your son's name, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you so much.